0: Well, if you have your Bible, turn back to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. The message for today is entitled, He is Worthy. Thank you, Brandon, musicians, for leading us in music that is worthy of the Savior. He is worthy. At the end of this message… We're going to respond by singing a song called He is Worthy. You might say it was written by a man named Andrew Peterson, a gifted songwriter, but really what he did was take uh, the essential portions of Revelation chapter 5 and put it to music. So we're going to, we read Revelation 4 and 5. We're going to work through Revelation 5, and then we're going to sing Revelation 5. The song begins by asking these two questions, do you feel the world is broken, do you? Do you feel the shadows deepen? The world is broken. The, sh- the darkness is growing, sickness, disease, conflict, turmoil, war, destructive weather, lost. Jobs, murderous rampages, divided homes, hostile politics, ethnic strife, religious persecution, and of course, death. These are all words that describe, in very significant ways, March 2020 to April 2021. And it doesn't seem like the world's going to get any better. Certainly doesn't seem like there's anyone who can make it better. Well, the song goes on to ask two more questions, at least in the first verse. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Don't you wish that disease would just go away? Don't you wish that interpersonal conflict and international war would end? Don't you wish that people would stop shooting other people? Don't you wish that politicians would be civil and promote the common good? Don't you wish that someone would just put a stop to death? Anyone in their right mind would wish for those things. Anyone really with the faintest stamp of the divine image would desire all that is wrong in the world to be made right. The question is, who is going to do it? Who has the ability to do it? Who has the power and the authority and the wisdom to do it? Who has earned the right to punish evildoers and to establish justice on the earth? Even the ability to bring an end to death itself. You know who it is, don't you? Who is it? Who is it? Well, if He is worthy to do these things, He is worthy of our love and devotion and our worship. In Revelation 5, we have declared to us three reasons that Jesus is worthy to judge the world and thus worthy of our worship. There are three scenes as you look at the text, three scenes in this heavenly drama that highlight each, of, each one of them a unique reason for Christ's worthiness. In the first scene, verses 1 to 5, we will see that He is worthy because of His exclusivity. He is worthy because of His exclusivity. In scene number two, we will see that He is worthy because of His victory. Because of His victory. And scene number three, He is worthy because of His supremacy because of His supremacy. So, number one, Jesus is worthy to judge the world and thus worthy of our worship because of His exclusivity. Before I read the the first five verses there, just call back to your mind the image we saw from chapter 4. John is taken up into heaven, and he sees this scene of a, a throne in the center of his eyes, if you will, And around the throne, he sees four living creatures who are really fantastic in their appearance, constantly praising God because He is holy, holy, holy. And around the four creatures, he sees 24 thrones occupied by 24 elders who have been bestowed honor by God, but who are giving back to God the honor that He bestowed to them. And so, with that image in your mind, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion of Judah, excuse me, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. As John stands, captivated by this awesome scene of God on His throne with the fantastic creatures around him and the 24 elders, his gaze is drawn back to that center of the throne, and he notices that God is not sitting there passively receiving worship, he is sitting there ready to commission someone to do something. And that commission is represented by a scroll in his hand. The NASB follows the King James Version in translating it book, but literally the word means scroll. John describes this scroll as being written on the inside and on the back and being sealed up with seven seals. That description alone doesn't tell us what's in this scroll, but if you were to read, starting in chapter 6 and the following chapters, you would see that this scroll is the decree of God's wrath to be poured out on the earth. In this scroll are the determined judgments by a just and holy God that must take place on this world that He has created and sustains and rules over, but which has rebelled against Him. God the Father is always fully capable of accomplishing His own will because of His own power, but He almost always chooses to accomplish His will by means of others. Even in creation, He worked with the Son and with the Spirit to to make everything that is seen. And now that the time of judgment has come, the Father seeks an agent who will administer His judgments. And so the call goes out to see who is willing. And not just willing, but who is able to take this commission from the Father and enact His will. The angel cries out Who is worthy to open the book, to open the scroll, and to break its seal? With that call, the incessant praise of the four creatures comes to an end. The song of the elders ceases. And all of heaven stands still, quietly waiting for a response. They wait for someone to call out, for someone to say, here I am, send me. But no one does. No one, no created being in heaven responds to this commission. No one on earth answers the call. Even no one under the earth volunteers, not even the strong angel himself who has made this call volunteers, showing that strength alone is not what's needed to fulfill this decree. No created creature is found worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. The, The silence is palpable, but it's broken by John himself. Not because he raises his hands and volunteers. He knows he's not worthy. He doesn't volunteer. It's broken by his own weeping. John, The way John describes this tells us this isn't just some tears flowing down his cheeks, maybe a little whimper here or there. No, he says that he broke the silence of heaven with great weeping. This would be loud and profound sobs and wails. Why would He weep this way? Well, it's because the Almighty, who has declared the end from the beginning, has no one to take His plan and put it into action. It's almost as if the will of God is about to be thwarted because there's no one to take up that commission. I mean, throughout all history, God has always had people who were willing and able to do what the Father called them to do. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 that when Isaiah had a similar vision of heaven and the father had a decree that he wanted to accomplish, Isaiah volunteered, he said, here I am, send me, and the Lord sent him. In 1 Kings, the prophet Micaiah had a vision of the Lord on his throne like this with all the hosts of heaven surrounding him, and the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one of the spirits in that case responded saying, I will entice him, and the Lord sent him. So if the Lord has always had volunteers to do His bidding, why not now? How could it be that no created being in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to take this scroll and to accomplish the plan of the Almighty? Well, the answer is simply this. This commission is not merely the task to herald a message as it was for Isaiah, nor was it simply influencing an individual as it was for the Spirit in 1 Kings. The task now at hand requires a level of power and authority over life and death and man and creation that no created being can be given or obtain. And so, with no created being able to take the scroll, John weeps uncontrollably. Perhaps he created that awkward moment where a large crowd is distracted by that unfortunate noise of a cell ring or something. Maybe there were hundreds of angels who looked at John with that angry look of, what are you doing? then there were other angels who were just thinking in their minds, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look, I don't want to disturb. But then one of the 24 elders turned around and looked at John and said, hey, stop weeping. Behold, open your eyes, you're missing what's going on here. And he directs John's attention back to the center of the circle and he says, the lion That is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And it's in these words that we find the exclusivity of Christ. The elder uses two titles for Jesus that identify him as the Messiah of God, making him exclusively worthy to take the scroll and thus exclusively worthy of our worship. The first title, as you see there, is, you could shorten it to say, The Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. This title comes from Genesis 49, verses 9 to 10, where Jacob prophesies that the ruler of the nation will come from the tribe of Judah. Of course, Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes, and before he died, he blessed each of his twelve sons. And he says this of Judah, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down like a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, a lion is used here because of his predatorial nature. It's strong and powerful and fearful. It's the animal that rules and reigns though now just uh, extinct from the region, lions back then were common in Israel. In fact, the prophet Balaam mentions lions in his blessing of Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Moses refers to lions in the song that he wrote before his death. Samson ate honey out of the carcass of a lion. David killed lions while he was protecting his sheep. Daniel, of course, was thrown in the lion's den, and we could go on. There's many examples of lions in the Old Testament. They were all over, the, all over the place. In fact, they were so common that Solomon said that the proverbial excuse for sluggards was to say, I can't go outside. There's a lion in the streets. I'm going to be killed. At that time, the lion was the most feared predator of the land. They were not just the king of the jungle, as we call them, but they were the king of the arid land as well. And so Jacob describes the tribe of Judah as a lion because one day they would be the ruling tribe. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This prophecy that Jacob made was really fulfilled when David became king in Israel. David was of the tribe of Judah. He was anointed the king of Israel, and the Lord promised him in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The New Testament explains to us that Jesus himself is from the tribe of Judah, The genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3 both make the line of Jesus from both parents through Judah. And the author of Hebrews says, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. After the resurrection, moments before he was taken up into heaven in a cloud, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Paul wrote that the Father put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. My friends, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He has authority over all things, and the Father has put all things under His feet. Jesus is the descendant of David, whose throne is established to rule over and conquer the enemies of God. You can search high and low in the scripture, and you'll find that no one else is given this title, the Lion of Judah. No one else has or will devour the enemies of God's people. Which is a good time to consider Are you an enemy of God? Have you been living as if God doesn't exist or God doesn't care? I assure you, He does exist, and He does care. He knows you. He cares about your life. And the Lion of Judah will bring His wrath upon all those who refuse to bow the knee to Him. But this lion also offers a way of escape if you would but come under His rule and submit to Him. Well, the second way the elder identifies Jesus is by calling Him the root of David, the root of David. By calling Jesus the Lion of Judah, the emphasis is placed on the fact that Jesus was descended from, Jude, from David and Judah. By calling Him the root of David, this elder identifies Jesus as the progenitor of David. This title comes from a modification Of a title for the Messiah given in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, which says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. I know I read it quickly, but it said, Root of Jesse. Jesse is David's father, and we don't know why Isaiah chose to identify the Messiah with Jesse rather than with David, other than possibly to further remove the Messiah from David to say, that the Messiah was before David. He is the root of David. So, it's true to say that Jesus comes from David. He is the line of Judah. And it's also true to say that David comes from Jesus. Jesus is the root of David. David. Or as Jesus Himself says in Revelation chapter twenty-two verse sixteen, I am the root and the descendant of David. Now, how, do, how does that work? <laughs> well, this is a conundrum that Jesus used to confuse the Pharisees during His time on the earth. Jesus asked them in Matthew twenty-two forty-two, "Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He?" And they said to Him the son of David. Yeah, they knew that Jesus or that the Messiah was the descendant of David, that He would be the Lion of Judah, the king descended from David's throne. So, Jesus goes on to say, "'Then how did David in the Spirit call Him Lord? Saying, "'The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls Him Lord, how is He His Son?' You see, in that day, the father was always greater than the son, and so it would be inconceivable for a father to call his son Lord. The son would be the one calling the father Lord. So how can David refer to the Messiah as Lord when David should be the greater one? They had no idea. Well, the answer is that Jesus is the root of David. Jesus existed before David and He existed after David. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about reincarnation here. To better understand this, consider another time when Jesus was talking to the Jewish leaders, and He said to them, "'Your father Abraham,' who of course lived before David, "'Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad.'" To which these Pharisees replied, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. So why, why would they do that? Why would they pick up rocks to try and kill Jesus? What did he say that angered them so much? Well, by saying... I am, Jesus effectively says, I am God. You see, Jesus is the root of David, not biologically, not by lineage or marriage or covenant. Jesus is the root of David because as God, He created David. We see in these two titles, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, the incredible truth of the Incarnation. The incarnation simply means that God became man. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, eternally existing as God along with the Father and the Spirit, but to accomplish the plan of redemption whereby He would save a people and put His glory on display, Jesus stepped into the world that He created, took upon Himself a body, and lived a life fully pleasing to the Father completely consistent with His divine character and, div- and moral perfections. You see, the reason Jesus is exclusively worthy to take the scroll when no created being could, it's because He's not a created being. He is God, and He alone is worthy to take the scroll. But it's not just who he is that enables him to do so. The elder goes on to say, you see it there at the end of verse five, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. That overcoming work is the second point. He is worthy to judge the world and thus worthy of our worship, not only because of his exclusivity, but also because of his victory. Look, At your Bible at verses 6 to 10, John continues, And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Well, having been duly rebuked by this elder who told him to stop weeping, John wipes the tears from his eye and looks back at the center of the circle where God sits on His throne and he sees a marvelous sight. Now keep in mind that what God is doing here in giving John this vision is He is trying to communicate spiritual realities, not so much physical realities. So the fantastical details that we see here are spiritual truths, not so much what Jesus actually looks like. In contrast to the title, Lion of Judah, John sees a lamb. A lamb that is standing as if it has been slain. Apparently, he could see where the fatal wound had been inflicted. Maybe there was a stream of blood flowing on the wool that came from that wound. Clearly, this is a lamb that had been offered in sacrifice This is, as John the Baptizer put it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb whose sacrifice ended all sacrifices because His blood was sufficient to pay for the sins of all of those who would put their trust in Jesus Christ. And thus, there's no need for another sacrifice. But notice this is not a dead Lamb thrown into the circle. This lamb that had once been dead is alive. He's standing there. This is what makes this chapter worthy to be preached on resurrection day. My friends, Jesus is alive. Yes, Jesus died, but he is risen and he stands in heaven victorious over death. Well, John goes on to say, as he looks at this lamb that he has seven horns and seven eyes. We don't have time to unpack this fully, but the seven horns represent complete power and the seven eyes represent complete knowledge. John identifies these seven eyes, as you see there, as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, which is a way of referring to the complete work of the Holy Spirit. If you recall, on Jesus' final night before he was crucified, he did a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit to these disciples who would be receiving him upon Christ's ascension. And Jesus said at one point, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to in Scripture as the Spirit of Jesus. And so here, by mentioning Jesus' power and omniscience in this scene, John is affirming that one of the reasons Jesus is worthy to take the scroll is not only because He is the divine Messiah, but also because He has the power and the knowledge to accomplish and complete true justice. There is nothing hidden from His eyes that will not be judged, and He has no limitations that would prevent justice from being carried out. He knows what to do, and He has the power to do it. And so John sees this Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, move into the throne and take this scroll from the Father. God the Son receives this commission from God the Father to accomplish justice on the earth. It's exactly what the Father promised all the way back in eternity past, which is declared to us in Psalm 2. Where it's written, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. The moment Jesus takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a new song. They change their tune, as it were and give fresh expression to praising the Lamb for His triumph. This doesn't render the old songs invalid, but this new song crescendos to higher tones, exalting what the Lamb has done. Specifically, we see in this song four dimensions to Christ's victory over death that are proclaimed. The first is the cost of the victory… Then the reward of the victory, the purpose of the victory, and the result of the victory. Consider the cost. They sang, worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seal. They cry out, for you were slain. The cost of Christ's victory was death. This is a clear reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus. As the sacrificial lambs were being slain in the temple on that day of atonement, Jesus was being crucified on the hill at Golgotha. and that was the plan all along. as Jesus grew up he, and as he walked on the earth, he had no expectation of reaching old age. He know, knew full well that his life would be cut short. he knew What it says in Acts 4.27, that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel would do what God's providential hand and sovereign purpose predestined to occur. There are at least three occasions in the Gospels where Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be killed, he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. And Scripture indicates that he said it many more times as well. Jesus knew that the plan to redeem a people for himself would cost him his life. Life and he gave himself for us. He submitted to the wicked authorities and allowed them to carry out their wicked plans and injustices. He gave up his life to accomplish salvation because nothing else could do it. Friend, if you're trusting in yourself and in your goodness to get you to heaven, you are hopeless. You've sinned like the rest of us, and there's no escaping the wrath of God that is due to you. Your merits, whatever they might be, are worthless to God. You must put your faith fully on the Lord Jesus Christ and His sufficient sacrifice, which covers the sin debt that you owe to God. Believe on Him and receive the forgiveness that He offers you. So the song first declares the cost of the victory, you were slain. Then there's the reward of the victory. What did Jesus get for giving up His life? They sang, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This describes salvation as a transaction, By becoming the Lamb of God, Jesus didn't just participate in some religious ritual that had no lasting benefit. No, He spilled His blood in order to get something in return, namely, people. You see, from the Garden of Eden until today, all mankind has sinned against God. We have rebelled against our Creator. We have rejected Him and worshipped and served innumerable false gods, including ourselves. We have lived the way we wanted to live. We have thought and believed the way we wanted to think and believe. But God, who revealed His power and His glory in creation, has kept very careful records of your life and my life. And He will punish every person for their sin by taking their life and sending them to hell where they will be cut off from His love and His grace forever. God told Adam and Eve that rebellion deserves death and death is what we get. Not only physical death, but eternal death. And there's only one way that we can be released from this penalty, and that is if someone takes our place. And that is what Jesus did. As the one who is holy and righteous, he did not need to pay for his own sin. And as the infinite God man, he could pay for as many people as would trust in him. And so he did. This transaction does not just set you free to do whatever you want to do. No, by paying with his own blood, he now owns you when you turn to him. You belong to him, body and soul, and are obligated to live for him. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Notice what it says of who He purchased. As you look there at verse 9, you might see the word men in italics, but literally it says, you purchased for God out of every tribe, tongue, and people groups and ethnicity. In other words, there is no category of humanity that is excluded from God's saving power. Sometimes, you know, people say, oh, Christianity, that's an exclusive religion. The exact opposite is true. All religions are exclusive because they teach that only the faithful few who follow their precepts as perfectly as possible have the, have the possibility maybe of achieving whatever their version of heaven might be. But with Christianity, with Christ, anyone can be saved, so long as they trust in Christ. It doesn't matter what family you're in. It doesn't matter what country you reside in or what language you speak or what ethnicity you have. Anyone from anywhere can be saved, regardless of what they have done, because they are all equally condemned, and all are offered the free gift of grace through Christ. Well, this victory cost him his blood, but his reward was a people. Consider the purpose of this victory. It's found in the prepositional phrase there in the middle of that line. That he purchased for God. This is really incredible, especially when you recognize and understand that Christ saved people from God for God. That is to say, Christ's death rescued a people from the wrath of God in order to return them to God in a different relationship. As we've said, sinners are under the wrath of God, not because God is an ogre, but because the people, ourselves, each one of us, has made ourselves enemies of God. We're hostile to God. We want nothing to do with God. But when Christ saves us, he gives us to the Father as beloved children. 1 Corinthians 15 24 says that the Son will hand over the kingdom, which is a people, he will hand over the kingdom to the Father. Near the end of Revelation, we hear this proclamation, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Christ's sacrifice of Himself was not a self-oriented transaction. He loves the Father to the degree that He was willing to give up His own life to purchase a people as a gift of love to the Father. The purpose of this victory over sin and death was to glorify the Father with a gift of saved, sanctified, and glorified people. Finally, consider the result of this victory there in verse 10. He says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. All those who have been redeemed by Christ are transformed. By virtue of the new birth, we are natural born citizens of heaven. By virtue of our sanctification, we are priests to God. And by virtue of our adoption, we are co heirs with Christ, and thus we will reign with him. Consider each of those. John says in, or Jesus says in John 3 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, how do you know if you're born again? Well, John tells us in 1 John 5 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So if you believe in Christ, you are born again. And just like when you're born into this world, you become a citizen of the place into which you're born, when you're born again, when you have that spiritual birth, we become citizens of God's kingdom. He also says there that these people have become priests to God. In order to be a priest, that is to be devoted to the service of God, one needs to be set apart from the people. One needs to be purified and cleansed. And that's what the blood of Christ does for us. It washes us clean and sets us apart from sin and unto God so that we can serve Him. And finally, it says, they will reign upon the earth. A new birth is one metaphor that's used to talk about salvation. A similar one is adoption. The Father has adopted us as His children, and because He is the sovereign ruler of all, that makes us recipients of the benefits and privileges of divine sonship. Romans 8.18 says, If we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As co-heirs with Christ, we will reign with Him. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. First resurrection is all of those who have died before Christ returns and who are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. Blessed and holy is the one who has the first part in the, in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years, speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. What a victory this is. At the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death purchased a people for God and transformed them to be worthy servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's worth singing about. That's worth celebrating and that demands our worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship because of his victory. Well, finally, we see in this third scene that Jesus is worthy to judge the world, and thus he is worthy of our worship because of his supremacy. Look at verses 11 to 14. Then I looked and behold, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of of thousands, and they were saying with a loud voice, say it with me if you have it in front of you, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell fell down and worshiped. In these previous two scenes that we've seen so far, the the camera lens, if you will, was really narrowly focused in on this throne and those who were immediately around the throne. But all of a sudden, John's vision is zoomed out, as it were, and he looks around, he sees innumerable angels as far as the eye could see. The, The word myriad is transliterated from the Greek word murios, which is an, a large indefinite number often used to refer to 10,000 in Scripture or in some cases even 1 million. The word translated thousand means thousand. <laughs> but by saying myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, John is clearly saying there is there were so many angels there is no way to count them. A few years ago, I went to the together for the gospel and a conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and we met in a basketball stadium, there were 13,000 people singing their hearts out to Christ. m and Stadium up in Baltimore has a capacity of 71,000 people. Whether it's 13,000 or 71,000, that doesn't hold a candle to what John is seeing here. If a myriad is 10,000 and John says myriads of myriads, that's 100 million right there. But again, his point is not the number, his point is the innumerability of these angels. As far as the eye could see, our ears can't even imagine what that sounded like. But more importantly, look at what they're saying. They are heaping worship on the land that was slain by ascribing to him seven characteristics that explain why he is worthy to be worshipped. This is an exclamation of kingly worship. The word worthy, which is also uh, in verse 9, means that there is a direct correspondence between who he is and what he's done to what he has. It's fitting and deserving that He has these characteristics because of His nature and His work. The infinitive that you see, which is to receive, technically means just that, but in a throne room setting like this, it's really just an idiom that actually expresses what the king already has. You see, when you worship the king of kings, And the Lord of lords, when you worship the one who created all things and owns all things, you're ascribing to Him what is His, not what should be His. Now, we've got to fly through these, but just think through these seven characteristics. Power. This is not authority, but ability. In Luke six verse nineteen, we read, "And all the people were trying to touch Jesus, for power was coming from him and healing them all." First Corinthians one twenty four says, "Christ is the power of God. Jesus has power. He's not lacking in power. All that he's done, he's done because he has." All the power to do it. He doesn't need more of it. There is no more to be had. It's all contained in Him. He is worshiped because of His power. Riches. This word can refer to financial riches, but it's not limited to that. Of course, Christ has no need of money or financial wealth. Psalm 24 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. So nobody can give anything to God that isn't already Christ's. Romans 2:24, excuse me, Romans 2:4 tells us that he is rich in kindness and tolerance and patience. Romans 9:23 says he is rich in glory. Romans 11:33 says he is rich in knowledge. Ephesians 1:7 and 2:7 say that he has surpassing riches of grace. Do you need something? Are you in desperate need of anything? Christ has it in abundance. He is rich in every good thing. Wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to skillfully apply knowledge. Jesus, being omniscient, is not like a database who is full of information but has no use for it. No, not at all. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows everything and He uses that knowledge in life perfectly. He applied wisdom as he lived on this earth overcoming temptation, responding to attacks, enduring suffering, teaching, modeling Christlikeness, godliness, and he applies wisdom now as he stands in heaven working and interceding on our behalf. He is worthy to be worshiped because he has power, riches, wisdom and might. This is essentially the exertion of power. Power is the capacity to accomplish. Might is the exertion of that power. Jesus is omnipotent, and the application of that power resulted in salvation. Jesus not only has inherent power, but He exerts it, according to Ephesians 1.19, in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Honor. Honor is the recognition of one's value. Paul says in Romans thirteen seven: Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. What makes Christ deserving of honor? What makes Him worth something? <laughs> well, His divine perfections of holiness and righteousness and justice and grace and mercy and all the rest as well as his work in history and ultimately at the cross. The holy, high, and exalted one humbled himself, taking upon a body, coming in the form of a slave, was obedient even to the point of death. And on that basis, he is worthy of all honor and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth to honor him. Glory is the next Characteristic, the glory of God is, as one dictionary defines it, the luminous manifestation of His person, His glorious revelation of Himself. When glory is described or ascribed to God as it is here, it is a declaration that He is a glorious being. And as we read in chapter 4, God is described as He sits on the throne as appearing like Jasper and Sardis. This description implies that God, that God's glory can best be described like brilliant, luminescent crystals that shimmer and shine. That the fullness of God in Christ on display is beautifully attractive, more stunning to the eye than the collective beauty of all the invaluable gems on the earth. Blessing. This is the word eulogia from which we get eulogy. It means to speak well of someone, to praise them and lift them up with your words. And while this is something that we can certainly uh, uh, contribute to Jesus, we can bless him, speak well of him, Christ already has all the blessing that he needs. When he came out of the water at his baptism, the Father blessed him by declaring publicly, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when, when Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, again, out of the cloud, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom, with whom I am well pleased. But I would submit to you that the most emphatic way that the Father has declared His pleasure in His Son, that the Father has blessed His Son, is by raising Him from the dead. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says of the suffering servant, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a gift offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. On the one hand, it was indeed the pleasing will of the Father to crush his Son. And because of Christ's obedience unto death, the Father was pleased to raise him up and give him the reward of the people that he redeemed. So Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. He has all these things in infinite measure and it's fitting for us to ascribe to Him and to heap praise upon praise upon praise because He is the Lamb of God that was slain for us. And then wonder of wonders, the camera lens, pulls back all the way so that John could see the entire created universe. And he hears every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth saying in unison, say it with me, to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The verb saying there is a present active participle indicating this was not a one and done statement. This was said repeatedly, like a chant at a sports event. Over and over, every created thing, which includes not only animals but even creation itself, was making noise, joining together in this chorus of praise. You know, Paul says in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, John, in this vision, hears creation groan turn into praises because the Lamb is about to set them free from the curse of sin. What John sees and hears is the sound of Psalm 148 put into practice. We read this in Psalm 148 Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, the highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever, and He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all. All hills, fruit trees, and cedars, beasts, and all cattle, creeping things, and winged fowl, kings of the earth, and all peoples, princes, and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. And as this refrain comes to an end, John hears the four living creatures repeatedly saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. My friends, Jesus is worthy because He, along with the Father and the Spirit, is supreme. There is no one who has all the glory and all the honor and all the blessing and all the dominion and the riches and the wisdom and the power and the might. Jesus is exclusively worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand because He alone is the divine Messiah. Jesus is victoriously worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand because He has conquered His enemies and received the people to give as a gift of love to the Father. Jesus is supremely worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand because He is endowed with all the characteristics of divine glory. And because He is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals, bringing judgment to the earth, bringing an end to sin and death, He is worthy of our worship. Friend, if you have not done so, bow the knee and worship Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you have bowed the knee in worship, bow the knee in worship again and again and again. He is the risen Lord who is worthy. Let's stand and sing.
1: the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died. A blessing and honor and glory. Does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. All together. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? break the seal and open the scroll. The lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the man who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation
0: seated. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and praise. We alone are deserving of your wrath because we have sinned against you, the holy and righteous one. You've only been good to us. And in our corruption, we have rejected you. But you have given yourself to redeem us from our sin. So we give you praise. May our lives be an act of praise and worship and offering to you from this day forward. Lord, as we celebrate your death this morning, and we partake of what we call the Lord's Supper, would you just continue to instill in our hearts your own worthiness? Amen.